Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Just how fragile or resilient are our democratic institutions? For two years, we've heard that fundamental institutions like the courts, the rule of law, the so-called grown-ups, and the permanent government would provide guardrails against the worst authoritarian impulses of this presidency. We were told that we've been through bad times before. That may be. However, in the often scary words of Wall Street, this time it's different. The Civil War was about the nation's original sin. The riots, upheaval, and assassination of 50 years ago in the 1960s were driven by the long-simmering war in Vietnam and the civil rights movement. McCarthyism in the 50s really was about the excesses of anti-communism. But what we face now is not about any real ideology or cause. It's about the exercise of raw power, fed by fear of change and appealing to white nationalism, hate, and racism. This time, it's not just about politics or war or an outside enemy. It's about the very culture itself. Causes like immigration and law and order are being used in the service of that power and its bid for authoritarianism. All in an environment that's hyper-pressurized, piped in 24-7, and brilliantly fueled by the lowest appeals to human behavior. In that way, this time, it is different. Joining me to talk about this is Greg Sargent. Greg Sargent writes the must-read Plumline blog at the Washington Post. He previously wrote for Talking Points Memo New York and the New York Observer. And it is my pleasure to welcome Greg Sargent here to talk about his book, An Uncivil War, Taking Back Our Democracy in the Age of Trumpian Disinformation and Thunderdome Politics. Greg Sargent, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. Well, it's great to have you here. One of the things you talk about is sort of the blood sport nature of politics today. But politics has often been blood sport. It's one of the things that, that perhaps led Truman to say, you know, if you want a friend in Washington, get a dog. It's always been more than beanbag. What's different today as you see it? Well, the term Thunderdome politics, as used in the book here, really references two things. Uh, the first is the zero-sum struggle that results in politics uh, the kind of fight to the death that results when all rules, norms, and uh, notions of procedural fairness go out the window, which is what's happening, been happening for a while now. Uh, the second is the, the Trumpian cast, the, the, the crude politics as blood sport entertainment uh, tenor that Trump has dragged us down to. So Thunderdome politics really refers to all of that mixed together. I don't know that we've had a stew quite like this before. And that's that all those pieces are important and, and meant to be captured with that phrase. And what difference does it make, as you see it, that so much of the nature of this battle, of this blood sport, of this Thunderdome politics is transactional, that it's about raw power and about money, arguably, that it's about a kleptocracy as well, and that unlike other situations in our past, whether it be the Civil War or McCarthyism in the 50s, it doesn't center around any ideological or policy base. It's just about raw politics. Well, it's often very hard to know what's driving people like Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan. I, obviously, ideology plays some role. They they want to redistribute wealth upwards. They they oppose efforts like the Affordable Care Act that expand the safety net and protections for for the poor. Um, they want to slash spending in all kinds of destructive ways. But their their particular exercise of 
procedural warfare often seems to to border on nihilistic and and uh, that's uh, something I write about extensively in the book. There, there, there I, I think that doesn't apply as much to Paul Ryan as it does to Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell is one of the figures on the American scene who's who's done really the the most to re- damage our democracy of anybody. Yeah, it, it seems like, particularly as you write about it, that that what McConnell has done is he has even more than Trump in so many ways that he has exploited all of the things that are broken to accomplish what he sees as his objectives. Yeah, I mean, he continues to, to break as well. Um, and there really appears to be no bottom with him. I, I, the, the, uh, the Supreme holding of the Supreme Court seat that, uh, that Obama tried to nominate Merrick Garland for is really the only m- most recent example. In the book, I tell the story of the uh, procedural wars of the last uh, few decades, beginning with Newt Gingrich. And what we see when we look closely at what has happened over those decades is what has been referred to as asymmetric constitutional hardball. It it should be clear, I should be clear that Democrats have played plenty of hardball too. Um, And in some cases it, it can be justifiable by Republicans or Democrats, but overall, if you really look at what's happened, you find that Republicans have played this sort of uh, scorched earth procedural warfare game to a far greater and far more destructive degree than Democrats have. There's really just no comparison. And and, and that has really done enormous damage. And, and I, that's where we are today. A lot of this stuff predated Trump. So Trump is essentially piggybacking on a form of destructive politics that's been in the that's been uh, waged for quite some time now which raises the question of course whether the goal of democrats is to close the hardball gap or to get or or to use the democratic process to get republicans to to not play the kind of hardball they've been playing right i in the book i what's going to happen is if democrats take back the white house and congress at some point in the next um uh two to six years i suppose um there will be tremendous pressure on them from the left in particular to really close that hardball gap and what that means is there will be tremendous pressure on them to play as roughly as republicans do when it comes to shredding norms and 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 rules of basic political conduct and and uh, competition. And what I propose in the book is I try to suggest what I consider to be the right equilibrium on these matters in which Democrats by no means unilaterally disarm and show themselves willing to escalate where appropriate, but at the same time stand for an ideal of fair play in politics which constitutes making efforts wherever possible to de-escalate the hardball by taking uh, weapons of procedural warfare kind of off the table um, where it can be done, and and that would de-escalate because it would disarm it would it would disarm these tactics for both sides. And I suggest in particular ways of doing that in the areas of of voting access, the voting access wars, and 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 the gerrymandering wars. How do you see that in the context of of poll after poll historically? 
that in a way that says that Americans like gridlock, that they like divided government, that they seem to be happiest sometimes when nothing gets done? Well, it's really perplexing because the, the same polls will also show you that they hate that they hate partisan uh, bickering, which is how it's often described. Um, so they want the parties to get along and get things done, but they also want divided government. So the public's a little tough to please on that front. Do we have a problem baked into the system in terms of of this issue of hardball and and what you call norm realism in in a broader sense? And it it came out, and there were a number of stories about it after the Kavanaugh situation, where, uh, you know, in the Senate in particular, where you have a majority of the Senate that doesn't really represent a majority of the country, and there's this flaw that is literally baked into the system. Well, there are certainly all sorts of uh, counter-majoritarian problems that are baked in, and I talk about them uh, pretty extensively in the book. Um, there's the, the the imbalance in the Senate with small states having with, with much smaller populations having two senators and large ones as well. Um, but a lot of this is actually created through the exploitation of rules. That's the difference. So. Uh, or I should say, through the exploitation of of these um, of, of 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 various features of the system. So take gerrymandering, for instance. There are decent reasons for, I suppose, um, having state legislatures draw the lines, but the result of that can be that uh, politicians draw the lines to entrench the power of their own party in in a deliberate effort to waste the votes of the opposition. And that it's both a feature of the system, but also a deliberate and and, and calculated uh, um, manipulation of those features for nefarious ends. And and those are the types of things we can address. We can de-incentivize that type of manipulation through reform. And and that's what the book is about. Mm -hmm. Of course, that has to happen within a democratic process. And one of the things you worry about that you talk about is this idea of democratic backsliding. Right. And so democratic backsliding can take various forms. It can be very pronounced and and shockingly overt, for instance, coups and things like that. But it can be more subtle and incremental. And that's what I'm talking about, the second variety in which the rules of political competition are perverted and manipulated to entrench the power of 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 the politicians doing the manipulations and those types of things can subtly erode uh, democracy by producing marginally more and more undemocratic outcomes and that's the type of backsliding I'm talking about where does money fit into that equation well one thing that I I wish I could have addressed at at greater length is is the problem of money in politics And, and obviously that's an enormous problem in and of itself um, I wanted to talk a little bit more directly about this type of hands-on direct manipulation of the electoral rules, um, and that's really what the book is about. The, and there's so many different uh, areas that you can focus on in trying to improve democracy that it's a, it's a little daunting as, as, as a project. Talk a little bit, though, about whether or not there is a point that we could conceivably cross in this presidency that makes it awfully difficult to get back to any of the norms that that are important? Well, it's a little hard to say what that would look like, but I will say this. If if Democrats don't win the House, I I think we're in some trouble. 
Um, if Republicans hold on to the House, I think we'll we'll be squandering a chance to have genuine oversight of this corrupt um, and, and destructive presidency, which is something a Democratic House would bring. We've already seen that Republicans simply refuse to exercise oversight at all and, in fact, are actively in- enabling a lot of Trump's corruption. They blocked, for instance, the efforts by Democrats to access Trump's tax returns. And House Republicans also have lent Trump a hand in running a harassment effort directed at a legitimate investigation to Russian sabotage of our democracy. Um, so in that sense, you will lose the chance to have uh, a real, a functional congressional oversight um, regime take over. But even worse, I think you could see a, a Trump emboldened to take much more aggressive action against the Mueller investigation if Republicans held the House, because he would know that there's nothing to hold him accountable for that. And obviously, Republicans would probably do nothing if he did that. We already know he's going to fire Attorney General Sessions after the uh, election and replace him probably with a loyalist who will clamp down on the probe potentially. So that is that, and 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 I think Trump could be even more emboldened to 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 pursue the self dealing with with greater abandon with no Democratic House takeover. I mean, he the message he'll take from it uh, a failure to win the House is that uh, everything he's doing has been ratified by the voters. So I think things could really get substantially worse if if Democrats don't take back the House. And if Democrats do take back the House, the other scenario is that the divide gets worse, that Trump's supporters, that his base becomes more emboldened. And if on top of that, Mueller comes forward with something that is credible, then the divide becomes even worse. And you can imagine a situation that's even more violent than what we've seen in the past 10 days. Well, I think that the possibility of of serious uh, civil conflict over the Mueller investigation is very real. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, it's almost as if to, to to what I think is the real ingredient in that is the enormous and 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 extensive and very powerful propaganda network that is behind Trump right now. It's the the right wing media and 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 the pro Trump media is really really. Uh, quite extraordinary in its willingness to support him pretty much no matter what he does and has been has already shown itself willing to run to lend all of its weight to the harassment effort directed at at the Mueller investigation and at Democrats who try to protect the Mueller investigation. Mm -hmm. So this is nothing like anything Nixon had in his time when he entered into the final Watergate struggles. He didn't have this type of apparatus behind him. And what we've seen is an effort by this apparatus to delegitimize both law enforcement and the news media's aggressive reporting on on what law enforcement is finding and on the Trump presidency. And so I don't know that we know what the long-term results will be of this concerted and, and really many-tentacled effort to delegitimize major institutions in the minds of millions of American voters. And that's, we'll have to see. Yeah, and that's really a big unknown because we haven't had this level. I mean, even if you look at historical civil unrest, this level of disinformation as part of it. Yeah, I mean, this president has 
taken political deception and lying to extraordinary levels. But importantly, it's it's not he, he isn't really it isn't just about winning a political battle or winning a political fight. I think it's much more sinister than that. It's really part of a broader effort by him and his supporters and, and many um, aspects of that network, propaganda network, to essentially destroy the institutional role of, of the news media in our democracy. Um, there's there's a really quasi-totalitarian um, uh, feeling to it all. It, the, the lying is is it's not ordinary. It's it's there's a love the audacity of it, the frequency of it. And and the 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 willing the the, the telling of lies that are easily debunked right. by a quick Google search is really um, alarming because what it really is about is declaring the power to say what reality is, even when reality can be established easily right. with a few uh, with a quick Google search. You know, we haven't seen anything like this in some, I don't think, before, and, and I don't know what the, the long-term result of it is. And it, it does make one think that we may be in a time in which this time it really is different, that, that a lot of people that said going into this, the institutions will hold, the proverbial guardrails will hold, are suddenly beginning to think, differently about this. Many of your colleagues are, are writing about this. I mean, Tom Friedman's story in the column this week, what David Remnick wrote in The New Yorker this week. People that, that hadn't said this before are suddenly beginning to think maybe all those institutions won't provide guardrails, won't hold. Well, I think I end up a little bit more optimistically in, in, in the, I end up with a somewhat more optimistic take in the book than, than all that. What I argue is that I think you can really see a way that the institutions do hold. But in, in many ways, they are holding now. Uh, the, the media has retained its critical and core independence, and it really has performed quite well um, in many ways. It's, it's really adapted to some of these challenges, although there are certainly still problems. Um, law enforcement, the rule of law has not, it, 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 it's still, it, it hasn't been uh, eroded or destroyed to the degree that some people predicted would happen, although it's taking a bit of a beating and morale is probably down among law enforcement, at least according to the reporting. But it, you can see a way that, that the institutions hold in, in, in a manner that we could end up looking back on this stuff as being a bump, more a serious bump, but uh, more a bump than, 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 a, than a slide into autocracy. To what extent do you see the media being able to, to hold up against the constant attacks on it? It's really this attempt to work the refs, kind of, but on steroids. Yeah, I mean, it's worth saying that the conservative movement has, has done a lot of this stuff for, for decades, but it's all reached a new level now. It, it seems to me that in, in, in really critical ways that the news media is both not really being intimidated by this type of assault, but also, importantly, reaffirming and standing up for the profession's core liberal democratic values in a way that I think shows an, an appreciation of, of the challenges of the moment. It sometimes seems like, in, in, in a very general sense, media figures maybe don't quite see the challenges to it in the terms that you and I are discussing now, but there does seem to be a fair amount of uh, 
of of uh, signs that they're essentially on an emergency footing of sorts, and, and that that seems to me to be a good sign and, and, and a sign that, that as an institution, it's, it's responding very well. What is your take uh, with respect to how this is playing, how this is all filtering down into state and local politics? Well, what I argue in the book is that if you want to revitalize democracy, one really important place to look is, is at, the, at the level of the states. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and this is something that really is lost on a lot of people, unfortunately, and I hope that changes. I hope people will get the book and, and read this part of it. If they don't read any other part of it, read this part. Um, you know, so just as an example, there's, Democrats have a pretty good chance of flipping a number of, of big governorships in big states. Now, um, what people don't know is that governors in many states can actually veto the redistricting maps that are drawn by state legislatures for both the Congress and state legislature. What that means is that they can block the hideously partisan gerrymanders that Republicans push forward. So any Democrat, any Democratic governors elected now, this cycle, will be in power in 2021 when the next round of redistricting happens. And they'll be able to block these terrible gerrymandered maps. If that happens in numerous states, then you could see the overall map of the House being much more fair, and I'm talking about nationally, than it is now. And, and that's not a small thing. And this is, this, this is decided now by these gubernatorial elections. So I would urge your, your listeners, if you're in a state with a big governor's race, please vote because your vote could actually impact what our democracy looks like for, for at least a decade going forward. Greg Sargent, his book is An Uncivil War, Taking Back Our Democracy in an Age of Trumpian Disinformation and Thunderdome Politics. Greg, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you so much.